It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Right now, we are going to clear the slate and go right now with a gentleman that's been on this program for a long time, and that's Dr. History. Good morning. Good morning, Zeb. Hey, I was going to ask you, you did such a wonderful, and I'm not trying to just pat you on the back, I thought you did an outstanding job explaining your trip over to Africa. And the one question that kept nagging me after the two programs that you did, did you at any time over there, did you actually have trepidations or fears because of instability in the government or instability with the environment or not knowing what to do or where to go on certain occasions? You know, I really never did feel uncomfortable. Really? I never did. Uh, of course, we stayed to the main thoroughfares and uh, one thing or another. Uh, t- so, no, not at one time did I ever feel uh, threatened. When you were out in the bush, one last question, and then I'll get right to the subject matter for the day. But when you're out in the bush taking these tours and everything, do they have people that go with the tour guides that are armed in case of an attack by lions, no. tigers? They don't? Well, uh, let me take that back. When we were on the safari, Yes, the they they had a driver and then they had a man sitting there that did have a gun. I yes, see on the safaris. I see, but other than that, out in the village, no, no guns. It was just a very relaxed uh, atmosphere out in really? the village. Yeah, and you felt totally comfortable. I did. Okay. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, listen, I, I commend you on a great job the last two weeks. Thank uh, you. Let's go now to one of my favorite subjects to talk about. And if you look around the room, you'll find on my bookshelves and everything else, uh, I was a student of the Civil War. That was one of my favorite times of American history. What are you going to talk You're about? You're going to recognize this, okay. the Battle of Fredericksburg. Oh, yes. Yes. But okay. be- before we go, I need to mention one of our good listeners is an author, and he wrote a book called The Clevenger Gold. And he sent that to me to read, and I've just started it. But it, anyway, it's the true story of the Clevenger family and buried treasure and murder. And anyway, it's... Uh, the just guy- the typical loving yeah. family. <laughs> yeah. Anyway... The, the author, is, his last name is Swap, S-W-A-P-P. So I'll keep you posted on as I start going through this book, but it looks pretty interesting. Okay, please so, do. All right, so the American War between the states was a brutal, brutal affair. I mean, with more than 620,000 dead, yeah, 400,000 wounded, the civil, civil War was still the costliest war in American history in terms of soldiers wounded and killed. Now, you know, the Civil War was the only war in our history that, Put neighbor against neighbor, brother against brother. You know, it, it was really a sad thing, but you know, they were fighting for what they believed was right. You know, you interestingly point out brother against brother in the same family. Some joined the Confederacy and some joined exactly. the Union. And I've got a lot of books talking about real life uh, stories right. about that. And there's a lot of that that took place. But, you know, a most disastrous campaign of the war for the Union was the Battle of Fredericksburg, which was in Virginia. Yeah. The federal forces made several attempts to take a well-fortified position on the Confederate side of the Rappahannock River, 
the assaults led to a staggering loss of life and terrible suffering uh, during the attack on Mary's Heights. Right. You've heard of Mary's I Heights. Yes. And this was in December of 1832, so it, it would have been somewhat cold. cold. Yes. Yeah. But failing to change tactics once they recognized the strength of the Confederate Army, the Union generals continued to send wave after wave of soldiers into this killing field, really, it was, and thousands were killed or wounded. Yeah. Uh, but they kept sending men in there. But the battle stretched on for two days. Now, what was the advantage to do that? What did they hope to achieve? I think they just wanted to drive the the Confederates back. Just I see. get out, you know. But it stretched on for two days. During the fighting, the wounded Federal soldiers lay unattended in a mountain of corpses, where they spent a miserable Saturday night in freezing weather. Unable to move to safety, and as Sunday dawned and more failed assaults took place, the Union wounded became increasingly desperate for help. They were out there laying out there, you know. In this awful setting, there was an act of mercy by a Confederate soldier, Sergeant Richard R. Kirkland. And it earned him the gratitude of dying Union soldiers and brought the raging battle to a temporary halt. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Kirtland, but but you, as I go along, you probably will. For some reason, I think that, wasn't there a book written about him? Well, as I go along, I'll bet you it's going to bring to your memory what what we're talking about here. But despite the futility of continued assaults on Mary's Heights, this General Burnside became obsessed with winning the battle. He ordered his generals to mount more attacks and more attacks, and finally they convinced him that further assaults were hopeless. Burnside gave in and allowed his army to retreat to the Union side of the Rappahannock River. Well, Burnside's defeat was complete, and Lee's victory added to his reputation. Uh, Lee had smashed Lincoln's hopes for a victory against the double stone wall and sunken road of Mary's Heights. Now, that's kind of giving you a little description of what the Union were fighting uh, against. Now, the statistics at Fredericksburg, uh, pretty bad, okay? 114,000 Union soldiers faced off against 72,000 Confederates. At the end of the battle, the Union had suffered 1,284 dead, 9,600 wounded, and 1,769 taken prisoner or missing. So they lost a a bunch of people. But the losses of Lee's Army of the Northern Virginia was less than half that. They only had about 608 dead, 4,000 wounded, 633 captured or missing. What was, I know the answer to this, but I want you to explain it to the audience. What was the nature and the environment of the battlefield where the Confederates were actually holed up, if you will, versus the Union? Okay, I'm going to get to that, because this was a first for battles, and and I'll, I'll get to that. But... So in December of 1862, Fredericksburg became the site of one of the bloodiest battles of the conflict. And despite suffering defeat in the first battle of Fredericksburg, a second attack on Fredericksburg would be undertaken in January of 1863. So this is the first one. Now, uh, go back to this Mary's Heights. Okay, The Mary's uh, was a family prominent in Virginia. They owned a large home on top of a hill at one end of Fredericksburg. Now, Lee could see from his reconnaissance of the area that the Union Army would have to storm Mary's Heights to secure the town. Mm -hmm. So he could also see that it would be virtually impossible for the Federal forces to breach the double line of stone walls at the base of the hill on which the home sat. So Lee positioned his best sharpshooters behind the inner wall, which was 
four men deep. So he had four lines of men shooting, replacing, shooting, replacing. But he believed that if Union troops stormed the hill, the Confederates could shoot them down with little risk because they were behind this stone wall. Right. So anyway, there were five failed Union assaults, which validated Lee's belief. And they went head on. Yeah, they did. The assaults occurred on a blood-soaked Saturday and Sunday, December 12th and 13th, 1862. Nearly 1,000 federal troops were killed, their bodies forming an increasing mound that had to be climbed over by the next unfortunate group of attackers. But the wounded soldiers were left behind at the failure of each attack. So every time they, they withdrew... Here's not only dead, but a bunch of wounded men still laying out there in the battlefield. Okay, now a question. I've seen the layout of this fight, this battle, and it often occurred to me as to why they didn't uh, divide the Union troops into three sections and attack from the flank. Yeah, exactly. And and the the story that I understand is Burnside was so intent on he was taking belligerent. Wasn't he was he? Yeah. oh so intent on taking this hill. He just kept sending them one after another. That just makes no sense. It, it doesn't. But uh, And I'm going to quote something. This is by one of the guys that was there. He said, quote, These wretched men lay crying, groaning, and begging for water and help in the most agonizing manner, and we were unable to rescue them. Oh, the rustle of a leaf or the cracking of a twig might send a shower of rebel bullets into our ranks. So they couldn't go out and, and get their wounded. Okay. Now, at the height of the battle, more than 5,000 injured soldiers lay among the heaps of the Union dead where they were left to suffer from their wounds in this, again, December. It was cold. So on Saturday evening, federal soldiers crouching behind their lines listened in distress. Can you imagine to the terrible sounds of your buddies and your friends suffering out there on the battlefield? Unbelievable. Uh, a few ventured out under cover of darkness to offer comfort, but uh, there was a Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Chamberlain of the 20th Maine recalled that he and a comrade spent most of the night lying between two dead soldiers to try to stay warm. Oh, my. When the cries of the suffering overwhelmed them, he and his friend left the relative safety of their position to help. And here's what he said. He said, We did what we could, but how little it was on a field so boundless for feeble human reach. Our best was to search the canteens of the dead for a draft of water for the dying. So can you imagine you're out there, you're wounded, and really, if you could just have some water. The inhumanity. Yeah. The inhumanity of man versus man. It's unbelievable. So anyway, as Sunday morning dawned, it was cold, it was foggy. The agonizing cries of the wounded grew more desperate. Mm. Watching from behind the stone walls, there was a guy by the name of uh, Confederate uh, Sergeant Richard Kirkland of the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, and he listened to these cries for help with, anxiety and finally he couldn't take it anymore here is the first hand account uh, that general jb kershaw of the confederate army published in a newspaper and he speaks of himself as the general so i'm going to quote what he uh, said about this quote all day these wounded men rent the air with their groans and agonizing cries of water water In the afternoon, the general sat in the north room upstairs of Mrs. Stevens' house in front of the road surveying the field. When Kirkland came up, with an expression of indignant remonstrance pervading his person, his manner, and the tone of his voice, he said, General, I can't stand this. What is the matter, Sergeant? asked the general. He replied, All night and all day I have heard these poor people crying for water. I can stand it no longer. I come to ask permission to go and give them water. 
The general regarded him for a moment with feelings of profound admiration and said, Kirkland, don't you know that you would get a bullet through your head the moment you stepped over the wall? Yes, sir, he said. I know that, but if you will let me, I am willing to try. After a pause, the general said, Kirtland, I ought not to allow you to run a risk, but the sentiment which activates you is so noble that I will not refuse your request. Trusting that God may protect you, you may go. The sergeant's eyes lighted up with pleasure. He said, thank you, sir, and ran rapidly downstairs. With profound anxiety, the general watched as Kirtland stepped over the wall on his errand of mercy. Oh, my. Christ-like mercy. Unharmed, he reached the nearest sufferer. He knelt beside him, tenderly raised the drooping head, rested it upon his own chest, and poured the precious life-giving fluid down the fever-scorched throat. This done, he laid him tenderly down, placed his knapsack under his head, straightened out his broken limb, spread his overcoat over him, replaced his empty canteen with a full one, and turned to another sufferer. By this time, his purpose was well understood on both sides, and all danger was over. From all parts of the field arose fresh cries of, Water, water. More piteous still, the mute appeal of some who could only feebly lift a hand to say, Here, too, is life and suffering. Mm. For an hour and a half did this ministering angel pursue his labor of mercy, not cease to go and return until he relieved all the wounded on that part of the field. He returned to his post wholly unheard. Who shall say how sweet his rest that winter's night beneath the cold stars? Now, it kind of touches you there, Zeb. Oh, You know, my. here was a, a ministering angel, if you want to say that. But You know, that was God's hand right there. Exactly. And not only giving him safety, but also helping all those right. people. And, you know, there's a lot of accounts, both Union and Confederate, were recorded of Sergeant Kirtland's bravery that day. And they all indicate that when this young man, in his early 20s, first climbed up onto the outer wall with as many canteens of water slung over his shoulder as he could carry, the Union soldiers were so starved that they paused, they stopped firing, and when they realized what he was doing, the entire battlefield fell silent. A spontaneous shout of encouragement erupted uh, as both Confederate and Federal soldiers cheered him on. Now, both did, sides. Did anybody else try to help him? Not according to this story. I see. And there may have been others, but uh, Kirtland seemed not to notice. He just focused entirely on his mission of getting water to these wounded men, whether they were uh, Confederate or Union. didn't matter. Anyway, when Kirtland's first group of canteens was empty, he disappeared back over the stone wall, and the firing resumed on both sides. Oh, my. But when he stuck his head up a second time, the battlefield again went quiet while he went out to another group of wounded, and this pattern continued for an hour and a half until he had all the wounded taken care of, at least with water. Doctor, right there, I think you should try to explain a little bit. The lines of the Union versus the Confederacy, they weren't that far apart. No, they were not. Uh, I want to say like 400 yards. At the most. Yeah. At the most. But uh, anyway, this General Kershaw, he, uh, this is what he said again, and, and I'm going to quote him. He said, a little remains to be told. Sergeant Kirtland distinguished himself in battle at Gettysburg and was promoted lieutenant. Actually, he fell on the field of battle in the hour of victory. He was but a youth when called away and had never formed those ties from which might be resulted in a posterity to enjoy his fame and bless his country. But he was bequeathed bequeathed to the American youth, yea, to the world, an example which dignifies our common humanity. 
So, you know, and the thing about the Civil War, it was so uncivil. The way that they fought the wars in those times, from the Revolutionary War through the Civil War, it was so archaic in the way that they basically used the human being as cannon fodder. Exactly. And, you know, I've just got a little more to finish on this, Zeb, and... uh, it, it, this is really a touching story to me. I, yeah. b- battles and and uh, things like that are amazing. The bravery that is shown forth by by men, uh, how they step up, you know. But uh, in the midst of this uh, Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, Sergeant Kirtland's act of heroism stands out because he was willing to risk his life to offer aid to the affected enemy. As his acts of kindness became known, his courage was celebrated in both northern and southern states uh, who knew him as the angel. He became known as the angel of Mary's Heights. That's what he became known as. But as mentioned, he continued his service to the Confederacy until, as mentioned by General Kershaw, he lost his life at the Battle of Chickamauga. And on September 20th, 1863, his body was laid to rest in Camden, South Carolina. But today, there are actually a number of memorials that pay tribute to Kirtland, including a bronze monument at the foot of Mary's Hill, depicting Kirtland kneeling as he gave water to a wounded soldier. And there's also an inscription on the wall of a memorial church in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, that talks about him. So here's a young man who otherwise would have remained unknown to history, but Found, I guess you could say immortality with his courage, and I'm just going to show you a picture of this uh, uh, statue or wow. this monument to him. Wow. As you can see, he's uh, uh, kneeling, giving water to a soldier, and uh, once again, you know the the fact that he didn't distinguish, distinguish between uh, Union and Confederate soldiers. Yeah. He he was there to to aid uh, these people, and unfortunately, he died in battle. And as the general said, he wasn't able to marry and have children and and continue on with his life. But, again, they fought for what they believed was right. But the Confederacy and the Union, they both, like I said, they employed the archaic, if you want to call it archaic. I mean, any time you kill somebody, I guess that's archaic. But the methods and means were so blatantly against uh, anybody coming out of it alive. Yeah, uh I mean, marching right straight on into an opposing enemy, I mean, that doesn't make a lot of common sense. Right. I mean, you look at uh, even like Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge. Oh, I know it. uh, There was so much loss of life. And uh, And the medicine and the care for the wounded was so ridiculously poor. Well, uh, there's another story about, I believe it was the Battle of uh, Gettysburg. There was a house not too far from the battle where the the doctors were amputating limbs, and they were on the second story, and they would throw the leg or the arm out the window, window. and it formed a pile right up to the second story window. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure they saved some lives, but, uh, you know, they would cut off a guy's leg, take a bucket of water, throw it across the table, and put another guy down. There was a movie that a lot of times movies are nothing more than a bunch of fiction and made-up facts, uh, if any facts at all. But remember the John Wayne movie, The Horse Soldiers, about the uh, Union troops, uh, John Wayne heading a platoon? And exactly that, the doctor cutting off a leg and then taking the bucket of water and throwing it across the blood. It it just absolutely amazes me why there wasn't total infection and more people dying. Right, because they, they didn't really know that much about cleanliness and germs oh, and, no. and infection. Yeah. and uh, But they knew that if a leg or an arm was so badly damaged, 
he couldn't live, they, they, they would cut it off. Yeah. And I've, uh, in some of the museums, I've seen some of the tools that the doctors use, the saws. And, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, just to, and the pain factor. I mean, we yeah. talk about all the uh, pain mechanisms today to take care of pain, whether it's Tylenol or whatever. They had nothing. Right. Yeah. Unbelievable. It, it, and then, the, again, the, the, the men who stayed there and fought. Uh, oh, you know, I'm just grateful that, uh, you know, we do have a united state. It was a gruesome time in our history, but uh, unfortunately, we still haven't come together that much. But, you know, we could have been like Europe. We could have have a, had a country of Florida, a country yeah. of Texas, a country yeah. of North Dakota, but we aren't. We are a, a united country. Amen. And I'm grateful to live here. It's a great well, place. I don't think there never will be. Or I don't think ever was a country as great as this country. Well, ever. I, I just tell you, when I flew back from Africa, when I looked out the window and saw New York City, I thought, "Welcome home." The Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then when you lower the plane, lowers down. It's getting lower and lower and lower. Just before you you landed at JFK. Yes. Okay, and you're just skimming the top of the water, <laughs> and my fears were. Can everybody swim? <laughs> <laughs> yep. When you feel those wheels touch, it's like, ah, yeah, another safe landing. We're here. But in my country. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. You did an outstanding job with that. And, uh, you know, we ought to do another Civil War story. I've got a book called Company H. I thought I gave that to you one time to read. I, I don't. About a Confederate soldier, and it's from his diary. It's an amazing story. I'll have to And get I'll that have one. to get that for you and let you comment on that. Okay. That okay. sounds good. Thank yeah. you. You bet.